Welcome to Sojourn. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. It's not very far in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, and then 2 Corinthians. And here's the reality of, of this many people gathering together is that I don't know all that you've come in here with. Whether you're weary from just the weak or, or from battling sin in your life or even just the fallen nature of this world and the people around you. Or whether you're wondering... Is Christianity real? Does does church have anything left to offer us? Or is this even helpful for anything? Are are you just lost in general? Are you beaten and battered? And the good news is for all of us, no matter where you come from, even if you're on different ends of the spectrum here, is that God has spoken. And that we get to sit around it and hear it and read it and try to understand it. And we get to do that together. It's a privilege to do that. So if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 as we'll be today. And I'm going to read the word for us. We have 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, Patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. And in return, I speak to you as children. Widen your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Fathers, we gather around your word. May it be a a light unto our path, a lamp to our feet, that we might know how to go, that you might be honored and glorified in our lives. We know that only happens through the Spirit. So God, we're asking that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is a time in all of our lives where we will transition from dreaming to doing. From aspiration of certain things to the labor of those things in and of themselves. And often what's filled up during that transition from the dreaming to the doing is some anticlimax. So it occurs when young lovers who want to get married and have this ideal picture of what it would be like to live with someone and spend their lives together and have a spouse. They have all these great dreams and they move from dreaming to doing and there can be an anticlimax. Because you know, if you're married, what the train wreck of a marriage can be sometimes when two sinners all of a sudden are put together in permanent residence with each other. Or take this. Maybe you decided, I want to be a doctor. It's a good, noble thing. You can do good things. You can make good money, right? So there's all sorts of incentives here. I I want to do that. And there's the dreaming part of it. Then you just take your first chemistry class or biochemistry and on and on we could go and you start reading these huge books taking these really extremely difficult tests and you start to understand like 
The dreaming and the doing sometimes can be very far off. And there's this, this sometimes this huge lacking. Or maybe you've, you've done this. You've looked up a recipe online. You said, this looks amazing. I'm going to make this. There's this dream and plan. This, this meal is going to be perfect and awesome. And then you start working through how you do it. And it comes out and it's not as good as the picture. So it's an anti-climax from what's going on. Or maybe you wanted to be Michael Jordan growing up. He thought, that is the goal. Everybody can do it. That's what you can be like Mike. He even said that. But then you start to go to the gym and you realize you don't get to just jump up and beat Air Jordan and slam dunk a basketball. You start doing a lot of shooting drills. Like you got to keep your elbows straight. You got to spend hours in the gym. You're sweating, running back and forth. There's this anti-climax to it. And perhaps this isn't just with those things in life, but also with ministry as well. So last time we were in 2 Corinthians... John preached from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to the beginning of chapter 6. And he talked about this ministry of reconciliation. There was this encouragement. All the Corinthians, be reconciled to God, but not just be reconciled to God. As people who have been reconciled to God, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Maybe you heard that and you were fired up. Let's go be ministers of reconciliation. Let's be ambassadors for Christ. And you had all this dreaming. I'm going to hit my neighborhood. I'm going to hit my neighbors. I'm going to go to all the nations. We can dream big. But we must not be deceived into thinking that all those dreams are as easy as just sitting here and dreaming it up. We don't want to be deceived into thinking that that role and task of an ambassador of Christ is going to be easy. It's going to lack all struggles. And so what Paul does in this passage is he gives us a great look into the struggle of authentic Christian ministry, of this ministry of reconciliation. And he makes the, he gives these huge lists and then he makes one great appeal to these Corinthians, widen your hearts. We'll see why he does that as well. But Paul has just called them in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 starting at the end to be ambassadors for Jesus. To be part of this ministry of reconciliation. Now why does he shift from from that encouragement to kind of in in chapter 6 starting in verse 3, this this defense of his ministry again. He's he's back at this place where he's defending his ministry before the end. Why does he he want to do that? Why would he do that? Well, he, he wants them to work as ministers of reconciliation. He wants them to work for the same thing he's working for. He wants them to be working for the same mission. And so he's going to defend his ministry, not so much for his own sake, but so that they would see this is what you're getting on board with. And if you're disapproving of me, you're not just disapproving of me, you're disapproving of of my mission and my agenda to honor Christ, to be a minister of reconciliation. And so if they're going to do this well and be ambassadors for Christ... They don't need to just be reconciled to God. They need to be reconciled to Paul because those two are tied together. Paul is this representative of the gospel, of the church, of the things of God as he's being an apostle to these Corinthians. And so he wants them not to just be reconciled to God. That's just part of the story. Be reconciled to Paul too. So he defends his ministry again. So he says in verse 3, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. Paul says, my my life and my ministry hasn't put any obstacle in your way of being ambassadors for Christ. Now, some of the Corinthian church are probably thinking, yeah, right. Uh, You've put plenty of obstacles in our way, Paul. You're an obstacle. You've given us many obstacles. Just think about how you look, Paul. You look like the penguin. We want people to look good. And you don't talk like these guys that are all full of wisdom. You, you just come and you tell us about this cross. We'd rather you look and, and act and speak like, like something else. 
You told us you were going to come and then you switched your plans on us. You put all sorts of obstacles in our way. And beyond that, we've seen your life and you just suffer constantly. You're poor. You don't have any money. You're, you're relying upon other people at times. So they're looking at it and they're saying like, we've also read your letters. There's all sorts of obstacles in those letters, Paul. You were harsh at times. You, you pointed out all sorts of things. They could be looking at Paul and saying, you have held us back in Corinth. We can do this thing better. We'll reach Corinth. We'll do it this way. You are an obstacle. But those things really weren't obstacles. At least not obstacles in the path to being a faithful ambassador for Christ, carrying out this ministry of reconciliation, or on the path to righteousness, or on the path to authentic Christian ministry. Paul wasn't an obstacle. Certainly Paul is willing to put obstacles in their way, but not on the path to being ambassadors. He's willing to put obstacles in their way on the path to sin. On the path that leads to death and destruction and division in their church. He's willing to put all sorts of obstacles in that way, but not in obstacles in the way of being ambassadors. So if they're pursuing authentic Christian ministry, they're trying to be ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ. He says, I'm putting no obstacles in your way. Now if you start taking classes in college and you have this major in mind, those, those classes that you're taking can sometimes seem like obstacles. Busy work, this is no good, this is pointless. But if you're pursuing a degree and not just a slip of paper, not just, in other words, the honor, the award of finishing a program, if you're actually seeking a degree where you're, you're learning, you're trying to gain knowledge so that you can go out and, and involve your life in this and give yourself to this, if that's what you're doing, then those classes aren't an obstacle, they're just part of the process of getting there. They're not an obstacle in your way. So some of these Corinthians, they weren't pursuing authentic Christian ministry. And so what's happening is they're saying, Paul is an obstacle and he's getting all sorts of obstacles in our way. Now there are all sorts of things that we can think of in our own lives that are, that are obstacles to ministry. Obstacles to being ambassadors. But if we're ministers of reconciliation, if that's the ministry we've been given... Sometimes what we can do and think of as these obstacles, we think of only all of our weaknesses. So we can think of gifting. If I was gifted like this man, then I would be able to be a minister of reconciliation. So we have that obstacle. Or if I was as smart and knew the scripture as well as, as, as I should, then I could go out and tell people, be reconciled to God. But I don't have any answers. So we put another obstacle in place. Or you say, I, I just I can't talk. I can't speak well. I'm really shy. I don't, I don't know how to talk around people. And so once again, another obstacle put in place. But what, but what are those really? Are those really obstacles? You see, God doesn't mess up and make mistakes in our lives in, return, in terms of our gifting. He doesn't make mistakes in terms of how He's created us and made us as human beings. And He hasn't made a mistake when He sent us out, the normal, average person, sent out as ambassadors for Christ. He, he doesn't make a mistake in any of those things. And so those things aren't obstacles. They're, they're part of the struggle. They're part of the process that God is wanting in our lives. When we have those type of obstacles, it reveals not that those are real obstacles, but that we're following the wrong path. Now we're not really going after this agenda of reconciliation for the world. We're actually going after somewhat of our own agenda. We're pursuing other things and we're not proving to be faithful ambassadors because we have our own agenda and not the king's agenda. So we have all these obstacles. Not everything in life that looks like an obstacle is one. 
Some are seeing some obstacles when that is just part of the process. Paul is not an obstacle. He is trying to get them to go in the right direction. Many of the things that the Corinthians would have said are obstacles actually authenticate Paul's ministry. And this is what he's getting at. If you look at verse 4, here's some things they likely would have said were obstacles, but Paul is using it to commend his ministry to them. He says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions and hardships and calamities. So, I'm a servant of God, he says. As servants of God. It's a good reminder to these Corinthians. And once again, Paul is saying, primarily I'm not serving you, although I want to do that. Primarily I'm serving God. And so he doesn't always give them what they want. He doesn't always fit their mold of what they want. And sometimes he seems like an obstacle in their way. But he says, I'm a servant of God. So I'm really no obstacle if you're going on that path. But he commends his ministry by these things. Great endurance, in affliction, in hardships, in calamities. In beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in labors, in sleepless nights. I want us to think about this list. It is plural all the way through. Plural. Afflictions. Hardships. Calamities. He had countless stressful situations. He had these people called the Judaizers that were constantly trying to usurp his gospel. The authentic ministry that he had that were coming in and saying, you can add this to the gospel, take this away from the gospel, and it'll be okay. Paul is stressed out about these things because he cares about the people in the churches that he's planted. He's faced persecution. He was near death. In fact, he was stoned one time, not drugs-wise, but like rocks thrown at him-wise. And, and he was laying, like they thought he was dead. They left him for dead. This is part of his afflictions, his calamities. He thought, they thought he was dead. He was pressured from without different groups trying to push Paul one direction or another. He was pressured from within. He, he has this great desire that these churches be built up in love and be faithful in their ministry. So he has all these things going on. He has plural beatings. And he's going to talk about this more in 2 Corinthians, but five times he got 40 lashes. Three times he got hit with rods. He's been in jail. He's had riots, labors, sleepless nights. He's gone in hunger. Now, what we were going to do, if we were going to put this up on his resume, and Paul were to list out his resume, and these things were going to be on there, no one is hiring him as an apostle. The Corinthians are not saying, yeah, why don't you come to our church? We'd really like your instruction. Most would say, if they saw that resume, you haven't had a successful ministry. It's been one problem, one disaster after another. And yet Paul is commending his life and commending his ministry with not what the world wants or the Corinthian wants, but by suffering. That's a really interesting thought. If this were the job description of of these ministers of reconciliation, of, of ambassadors... That you'd face these kind of things. This is part of the job. My guess is the Corinthians aren't signing up. And my guess is that most of us wouldn't either. And yet this is exactly what Paul says is part of authentic ministry. Beatings, afflictions, hunger, sleepless nights. Paul is a servant of God is authenticating his ministry with suffering. And when he does that, what he's doing is, is he's identifying with another servant of God. Servant who, who knows suffering. So I'm going to take us to Isaiah. You might have heard of this servant. Isaiah 52. Isaiah speaks of, prophesies about this one servant. And this is an awkward servant. You look in Isaiah chapter 52. 
starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant, he shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of of the children of mankind. Let's skip down to chapter 53, starting in verse 2. He grew up before, before Him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him. No beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we have seen Him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation who considered that He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of My people, and yet... They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. If I were to put that up, we could look at that resume and say, yikes. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. No one even looks at him and thinks anything of him, that he's anything special at all. It doesn't look like success. What that looks like and what they would have thought of when you're holding up that servant is that man looks cursed. Indeed, in a way, Jesus was cursed, this servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. And in that cursing, that suffering that he faced, what he did, it was that was used to bring about redemption, salvation, rescue for his people. Not through conquering as a worldly king. Not through gaining this great following as this popular man. But through a lonely cross. He was despised. He was a man of sorrows. People around Jesus probably thought he was a big obstacle too. And then he keeps putting obstacles in their way of ministry. You might recall a few times of Jesus, he keeps saying these weird things. Like one time in the book of John, he says to some really important people, Your father is Satan. That's not how you draw the crowds in. That is not how you influence people. As you say, you know what, your, your father, that's Satan. We know him. He's a father of lies and you guys are a bunch of liars too. So what he says. A really important place was the temple. Important people come here to do important things. This is the place where you can set up ministry and do this thing well. And Jesus comes and he starts throwing tables over. Chasing people out with a whip. Like that's an obstacle to ministry. Like what do you... I can't imagine what the disciples are like. Jesus, are you sure you're doing this right way? One time he comes up to a fig tree. Fig tree doesn't really seem to be doing anything wrong. And he curses the fig tree. People are like, what is, what is happening here? You seem to be one obstacle after another. He keeps saying weird things. He keeps doing weird things. And outwardly his ministry was maligned. He looked like one who is cursed. But he keeps showing people that this is not just a way. This is the way. And the way isn't necessarily marked by worldly success. 
In fact, all authentic ministry, real ministry, will follow that way, the way of the cross, in some way or another. It will take a cruciform, that is a cross-shaped view. So we're given the ministry of reconciliation. We're ambassadors for Christ. And we shouldn't be surprised if that ministry, if it's authentic, involves suffering. Beatings and riots. All those things that Paul lists here, they don't mean that our ministry isn't faithful. doesn't mean that God isn't working in and through our lives. It doesn't mean that our ministry is a fraud. What those things do is they identify us further with the servant of God, the one who suffered on our behalf and died. They push us in to his ministry as well. So Paul's suffering, like Jesus', is, is the vehicle that God uses to authenticate his ministry and spread the gospel. If you look in Paul's life and ministry, what, what is used so often is not his great strengths, but his weakness, his suffering. So are we willing as ambassadors for Christ, as those who have been given the ministry of reconciliation, to suffer if that's what it takes for God to use us? Are we willing to let suffering be the vehicle God uses in our lives? Now, authentic gospel ministry takes great endurance. And aren't we thankful that we have one, the servant of God, who we call Jesus, who went before us? Who suffered like we'll suffer. And who continues to supply every single one of our needs in that ministry. Well, Paul continues with the circumstances of his ministry. And they were full of suffering. But he shows us how he goes through this. How he does this. If you look in verse 6. He says, we do this by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love. Paul doesn't suffer just for being a jerk. Paul doesn't suffer just because he's mean to people. Paul is suffering for the right things. He's handling himself with purity, with with knowledge, with patience, with kindness. He's going about this the right way. That's not to say that Paul is perfect, but these things are the things that are characterizing his ministry to his churches and to these people. This is the way he goes about his ministry, with purity, knowledge, patience, and kindness. He continues this list. So you look in verse 7. He says, by truthful speech and by the power of God. This list, as you continue on, like purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God are characterizing His ministry. And there's so much for us to look at here in these lists. So we take one. He says, the Holy Spirit. His entire ministry is a ministry of the Spirit. And He says that He comes doing, especially in 2 Corinthians, this ministry of the New Covenant. Which is this ministry that says that God no longer is outside of you. He will dwell within you. And He will give you the freedom not to just walk in a certain way, but to obey Him now. That now, by the power of the Spirit, you can have life. You can have freedom from Satan and sin and death. This is all given. This is a ministry of the Spirit. So Paul didn't feel the need to make people obey laws or add laws to things to like hem them in. Make them obey and do what he says. No, he relies on the Spirit. The Spirit's the guide. He leads. And, and honestly, if, if in our lives and in our ministry, we're not relying, relying on the Spirit, we'll come up with something. We will come up with things to bring change. Paul's relying on the Spirit to bring change, to bring freedom, to bring life. But if we're not relying on that, we'll, we'll think of something. It might be something flashy. We'll just draw people in with this. We'll give them this experience. And then they'll be changed. Paul says, 
His ministry is characterized by this ministry of the Spirit. It's ministry of genuine love. We think back in, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 4, he says this, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So Paul gently rebukes him. And sometimes strongly rebukes him out of his love. He warns. He speaks truthfully. He does all these things because love says what's necessary. Love is willing to speak the truth. He walks alongside them, not willing to abandon them, although it seems like that would be the easy solution. The Corinthian church is off the rails. He has other things he could tend to. And he could have just said, get out of here. I don't need this anymore. I'll send somebody else. But he keeps walking alongside them because he loves them. He's in it for the long haul. He's sinking his roots down deep in the Corinthians and in their lives. And we need to be people that are marked by genuine love. Genuine love for one another. Genuine desire to be committed to one another. Not just flattering one another and being friendly, but loving one another well. That needs to be marked with truthful speech. Paul comes to them proclaiming the Word of God. Not his his own high opinions, although he probably gave them some of that. He wants them to obey God, first and foremost. So that's what he proclaims to them. It's not what they wanted to hear. He doesn't give them the soft version. He gives them the truth. He doesn't flatter them. He's willing to correct them if they're off. Because He loves them. Because He's willing to speak truthfully to them. May we never settle for just small talk in our lives. In our ministries. And we've got to speak the truth in love to one another. He says His ministry is marked by the power of God. Now if we look through 2 Corinthians, just a brief survey of what's going on. As He relies on the power of God. He says in chapter 1, His afflictions were given to Him to make Him rely on God. In chapter 2, God leads Him. He's the one who's leading Him in triumphal procession as He's this aroma to God. In chapter 3, His sufficiency, He says, comes not from Himself, but from God. In chapter 4, He says, I have this treasure in this jar of clay to show that the power belongs not to this crummy little jar, but to the treasure that's inside, to the power of God. In chapter 5, he says he's a new creation, and all of this is from God. And here he says his ministry is characterized by the power of God. Paul's power, our power, is very limited. Paul knows that. He's not relying upon his own strength and power. God's power knows no limits. He's letting his ministry be powered by God. Live by the power of God. And so as Paul kind of goes through this list, there's all sorts of stuff for us to take to our lives. But he shifts slightly. All through so far, all the way up to 7, to where we're getting ready to read with with the weapons of righteousness, he's used the same preposition all the way through. Same preposition. And here he switches at the end of chapter, or verse 7, to a different preposition to kind of show now, like this is what it's characterized by. And and now, here's the, the instruments. Here's how I did it. I did these things by this And he says this, With the weapons of righteousness for the right hand, for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, these are the things which he has gone through his ministry. Paul conducts all these things that he's spoken of with the weapons of righteousness, he says. So he goes into ministry, he goes into all these things, these sufferings, these problems, these anxieties. He goes into handling purity and knowledge, equipped. Ready. Not because he went to the best place in the world and got all the greatest knowledge. No, because he's equipped with the weapons of righteousness. He is equipped for the battle because he knows that God is my power. He's the supplier. He's going to give me what I need. For the right hand and for the left hand. 
Kind of like this idea of a sword and a shield. He's got all he needs to get into battle. He is fully outfitted. He has offense. He has defense. He has these weapons of righteousness. Because he's going to the front line. You might remember the Band of Brothers series. Did a great mini-series that you can watch. And there's a book as well if you're into reading. But there, the, this 101st Airborne Easy Company is, is this whole story. And it follows their story through World War II. And they're getting ready to go into one of the roughest places in the world. In the Battle of Bastogne. Where they're basically surrounded by enemies on all sides in German territory. And, and in the, the series, as they're walking into this battle, going in, they have to see people that are battered and wounded coming out. So they know that they're in for it. They know this is going to involve suffering. They know this is going to be hurtful to many of their people. They know what the cost is as they walk in there willingly. And so what they do is they start grabbing these people and say, Give me your ammo. Like, I'm, I'm going to need your supplies because we're going into this thing and I'm going to need more ammo. I'm going to need to be supplied. I need the white weapons if I'm going in here because if we're going to the front line, we need all that you have. Go ahead and dump it off on us so that we can go in fully outfitted, ready for the fight. God doesn't send His people into the fight, to the front lines of ministry, without the right gear. He always supplies us with what we need. We have this fully outfitted armor that we have for us. Weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. But this gear doesn't make us, although it, it adequately protects us, it doesn't make us invisible. Invincible. It could make us invisible. That would be sweet too. Invincible. We can't just, we're not just utterly indestructible. So he says this, verse 8 Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Through honor and dishonor, slander and praise. So it's not as if he's not open to attack still. There's still all sorts of things coming his way. And, and Paul faced all of these things. And so what the, the weapons of righteousness are helping him do is, is helping him maintain this even keel throughout this. Maintain this right level of faithfulness to God. So he doesn't let praise puff him up. I think, man, I am the greatest apostle in all the earth. And he doesn't let all the people that said, you're the most worthless apostle in all the earth, tear him down completely. He's not devastated and he's not puffed up because he has these weapons of righteousness. He has honor and dishonor, slander and praise. All these things he can face because he has these weapons that have prepared him. And as he continues these contrasts, he says at the end of verse 8, We are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich. As having nothing yet possessing everything. All of these contrasts he goes through in his ministry. And, and what I think these contrasts show is how compelling Paul's ministry really is. Paul has gone through all of these things. He's treated as an imposter. And so, even in the Corinthian church, people he's given his life for, they, they call him a false apostle. They said, you're an obstacle in our way. If we could just get rid of Paul and figure that whole thing out, then we'd be going forward. He's discredited, and yet he says, I'm true. He's constantly exposed to death. He was, indeed, like stoned. Like I said, he, they thought he was dead. They've tried to kill him, literally tried to kill him several times, and yet he still lives. He's punished and yet not killed. He faced much sorrow. If you remember in his ministry, in his life, he was abandoned by close friends. He was rejected by several places that he went. People just said, get out of here, we don't want this. He was persecuted. Riots would form in cities where he would go and say, you need to get out of here or we're going to kill you. And yet he says he's always rejoicing. How compelling is that? Always rejoicing. He's poor. 
Not because that's the way to holiness is to have no money like Paul. That's not what he's saying. He's poor for the sake of others. He's sacrificing of his own so that many could be made rich. It seems like he has nothing and yet he says he possesses everything. Because I think Paul knows. As it says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? He can have nothing and yet have everything. He knows Ephesians 1, chapter 3, Blessed be the Lord and Father of our God, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He knows that he may have nothing in the world's eyes and yet possess everything. As C.S. Lewis says, he says this, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Paul says, I can possess nothing and yet have everything. In Acts chapter 16, you see Paul possessing nothing. He's thrown in prison. If you look in Acts chapter 16 and verse 20. It says, And when they had brought him to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. And they they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And so the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. Does that sound like successful ministry? That sounds like something we're ready to sign up for. That sounds like that's a lot of pain and a lot of problems, a lot of suffering. This doesn't look like success. This doesn't look like you have everything. And yet we look at what they're doing. In verse 25, and it is about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners are listening to them. Is that compelling, you think, to those prisoners here, these guys are, that have just been put in prison, they're tied to the stocks, they're in the inner place, like, and they're, they're praying, and they're singing, they're praising God, they're thankful, they're, they're sorrowful, and yet rejoicing. They have nothing, and yet they possess everything. That's compelling ministry. Paul's ministry was backwards to the world, and all authentic ministry in some ways will be backwards to the world's eyes. We can look like we have nothing and yet possess everything. We can look like we're poor and yet we're doing it for great joy to make others rich. We can be in the midst of suffering and yet keep on rejoicing. That's compelling ministry. These these lists are are used by Paul to commend his ministry, but but what he's doing is he's, he's building them all up. And he's paving the way for this final appeal. Do you look in verse 11? It says, We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and our heart is wide open. If you have been working through First and Second Corinthians with us, you might be thinking, I would shut my heart down. <laughs> These Corinthians are horrible. He can plead with them. He can write them letters. He can visit them and still be under attack. They can discredit Him over and over and over again. I would be saying, shut it down. Close your heart. You don't need that. And Paul says this, our our heart is wide open. It's wide open for you. We have great love for you. This is proof of the great endurance that he talked about earlier in this passage. Paul's heart is wide open. Why endure? Why have your heart wide open? Because He loves them. 
He's ready to receive them. He's full of affection for them. He can't just let them go on their own. He's, he's committed to them. Paul's love in their rebellion is an example for us to, to keep our hearts wide open. Even in the midst of rebellion, even in the midst of people that are the tough cases, keep the heart open because of love. Not because it works into your agenda or is comfortable or safe for you or happy for you, but because you love people. This is what Paul is doing. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so he says to them, with no restraint on his love for them, verse 12, you're not restricted by us, you are restricted in your own affections. Their love for Paul had grown cold. Paul's heart is wide open. And so he speaks the truth in love. But their love had grown cold, at least for some of them. And what the problem is, is that their love for him is tied to the gospel. This isn't just a personal thing for Paul, where he said, well, you guys don't love me. He said, no, if you don't love me, what the problem is, is that you don't like what I'm about. And what I'm about is the gospel, it being formed in you and working through you in your church. And so if your heart is closed down to me, then your heart is being closed down to what you need to be doing, what you need to be growing in. This is tied to the gospel. And what has happened is they've accused him, they've disobeyed him, they've distrusted him, and he's just speaking to them as a servant of God. And so if they're doing all those things, it's not just about Paul and his life. This is about the ministry of reconciliation that he's working out in their lives. And so he's, you're restricted in your own affections. Seems like some of them have, have closed their hearts. But they haven't just closed their hearts to Paul, but in turn to the Spirit. And so Paul appeals to them, verse 13. In return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. Make room in your hearts for us, is what he's saying. Reciprocate the love I have for you, the love I've shown for you, back to us. There was a a time when we were in another church, and there was this pastor who kind of right out of the gates, kind of said some stuff that was tough to me. Not necessarily me personally, but he said it to us, and we heard it loud and clear, and we did not like it. Made me get critical of him. Start to have a hardened heart toward not just that one thing, but, but all other things that he was saying. It made me start to, to try to find faults in his life and in his ministry. To, to find ways, in other words, of, of excusing myself from not obeying. Not listening to how God was using him. So when I, I'd be critical, when I'd find faults, it, it made me feel justified. It justified not following through with some of the things that he was bringing to bear from the word of God in my life. Made me feel justified for, for living, in other words, my own agenda, in my own plan, my own way of life, when what he was doing was just bringing the truth as faithfully as possible to us over and over and over again. And the problem in that situation wasn't with that pastor. The problem was that my heart was closed off. And when my heart got closed off, it wasn't just to that man started being closed off to the truth from God's Word. And it took a lot longer for those things to penetrate my stone heart because of what I had thought about a man. And isn't this what happens? When the truth confronts us, many times we don't like it. For any number of reasons. You can probably think of three come to your head right now. I don't like that because of this. And so what we start doing is we start trying to find fault in the message. Or fault in the messenger. And what we're doing is we're not just trying to find fault in the message or the messenger specifically. We're also trying to justify our lives. So that we can live the way we want. 
Paul pressed in on them and they started closing their hearts to Paul, finding faults, saying, you have become an obstacle and you're placing obstacles in our place. You're not a channel of grace anymore. You're just an obstacle for us. You're not a guide to us anymore. You're in our way. You're not a shepherd to us. You're leading us down the wrong path. You're not an apostle to us. We have other apostles that tell us all that we need to know. Maybe you've been there. Or maybe you are there. Whether it's me bringing the truth, your home group leader or a friend in your life that's speaking the truth in love. Maybe you've started to close your heart. And although they're saying things that are true and that deep down they're ringing true in your life, you start to shut them out. Widen your hearts. God is likely using those people as a channel of grace in more ways than we recognize. Paul is appealing because his ministry is authentic. Because he's not living for his own agenda. Because I've, he's loved them and shown them genuine love. And he appeals to them, widen your hearts. If someone is willing to show the love that Paul has shown, to, to be there for the long haul and walk alongside them as Paul has done, then don't close them out. He's speaking truth. Widen your hearts. He's not just looking for reception for Him personally. He's looking for the reception of His message. Of the truth of God's Word. Do we have people in our lives whose hearts are wide open to us and yet we're giving them the stiff arm? People that are willing to come and speak the truth in love to us, and yet we don't like what we're hearing, and so we push them away. This is exactly what the Corinthians are doing. So if you're on Paul's side and you're being stiff-armed, look at Paul's ministry and what you might have to suffer to keep entering in. But if you're on the other side and you're stiff-arming, then the the appeal here is is make room in your hearts to receive authentic ministry, to receive truth, to receive love. Not just how you want it to be, but how it actually should be. See, for the Corinthians to get things going in the right direction, they need to widen their hearts to Paul. This is bigger than what they think. They think we can discredit Paul and keep going forward faithfully. And Paul is saying, you need to widen your hearts to me because you're not going in the right direction until you do. He doesn't want them to close their hearts because he knows that that means that they're going to go into more and more and more problems. But I think Paul writes and continues to struggle with these Corinthians because he has confidence. Not in his own ministry and how authentic it is, Not in all these sufferings that he's faced on their behalf. And not just in the greatness of his love for him. But I think he has confidence in his Lord. Because Paul's ministry, although it's really compelling, as he's sorrowful yet rejoicing, as he's poor yet making many rich, he knows one whose life and ministry was so much more compelling. And he says, I'm a servant of that one. One whose life was so compelling... That it draws people in from all tribes, all nations, all peoples. It was compelling because what it was, was a sacrificial life in ministry. This is the ministry of Jesus. 
who lived the life that we could never live in perfect obedience to the Father as He's ridiculed and rejected. Who dies the death that we deserve to die because of our sin, even though He had no sin. So that, by His name and through His sacrifice, we might have life. That's compelling ministry. Paul has confidence in this one, and we should too. Widen your hearts. Today, we're going to proclaim publicly our confidence in this servant, in Jesus. We do this in the Lord's Supper. This is a sacred family meal where we say together that this is the one who lived where I couldn't live and do the things I could never do. This is the one who died the death that I deserve to die but could never fully pay my sins. This is the one who paid that price for me. It says He canceled the record of debt that stood against us by nailing it to a cross. This is Jesus and this is compelling. And so if you're not a believer, I'd encourage you, take Christ. Think about sacrifice and living a life of sacrifice. And He does this, He says, not just for His own sake, but to make many sons of glory. Look at Christ and open your heart to Him. But if you're a believer, we're, we're proclaiming our confidence in Christ now. That our lives and our ministries, they don't look the way they should, and they're a mess at times. But we don't rely upon our own merits and our own works and our own deeds. We rely upon Jesus Christ. And so this meal is, is a public proclamation of our confidence in Him and His death and resurrection and return. And so I want you guys to, to say this prayer with me as we come and take the table. It should be up on the screen for you to... Let's pray this prayer together. And what we're going to do is we'll pray this together. And I want you guys to, to feel like you're not in a hurry. So if you need to go through these words again and again until they are, are saying them, you're saying them in faith, then, then do that. If you need to remain quietly at your seats and just let God work in your life, then do that and then come and receive from this table. If you're not a Christian, stay in your seats and take Christ instead. This is not for you. If you're a believer, proclaim before this church and as together as a church that Christ is enough for us. So let's say this prayer together. Holy Father, in thanks for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in the joy of His resurrection, and in the hope of His coming again, we present ourselves a living sacrifice and come to the table of our Lord. Amen. Come and take it.